First Peter chapter four, beginning at verse seven. First Peter chapter four, beginning at verse seven. When I thought about different passages that I go to during hard times in my life, I think of Hebrews twelve that we looked at last week. And I'm also drawn personally to the letters of Peter. I think Peter knows what it's like to go through hard times. Tonight we're going to look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through the rest of chapter 4, Lord willing, and then next week 1 Peter chapter 5 as we wrap up our semester together. Peter, a young man who left everything that he knew behind as a fisherman to follow Jesus Christ. That was hard. And yet later on as he walked with the Lord... He tried to talk the Lord out of doing the one thing that the Lord came here to do, which was to go to the cross and die for our sins. So the Lord said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're trying to prevent the work of God rather than support the work of God. A little bit later on, Peter is the one that walks on water out on the Sea of Galilee. And yet, a little bit later, Peter's saying, I'll never deny you, Lord. And Peter denied the Lord three times. And yet, after Peter's restoration, Peter is the one who preaches this wonderful, powerful message on the day of Pentecost. And thousands come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have pretty good indication that Peter died for his faith. And not wanting to have the dignity of being crucified right side up like his Lord. He was crucified upside down. And that's how his life ended. Peter knows what hard times are like. Not only because he experienced hard times in his life. But he walked with the Lord on this earth. And saw how the Lord dealt with hard times. And so... Peter has a lot of wisdom to share with us tonight, and I just want to begin by reading this passage and not breaking it up yet, but just reading the flow of what Peter wants to say to us during hard times to encourage us. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. Please follow along. Peter writes, For the culmination of all things is near, so be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep your love for one another fervent because love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. And just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the very grace of God. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies. So that in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ so that when His glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory, who is the Spirit of God, rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or criminal or as a troublemaker. But if you suffer as a Christian, 
do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. For it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? And if the righteous are barely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then let us who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. Now the historical background of the people that Peter was writing to was specifically that they were going through, as we just read here, Intense persecution for being Christians. That may not be the reason why you and I are suffering right now if we are going through hard times. But the principles that Peter lays down to these folks who are going through really difficult times in their life can certainly be applied to all of us no matter what hard times or struggles or difficult trials we go through in life. I hope you'll come back next week because First Peter fa- chapter 5 just sort of wraps it all up and shares some really important stuff as well. But I want to go back now to verse 7. The first thing that Peter reminds us of is that the culmination or the end of all things as we know it is coming. It is near. And Peter is just reminding us of the encouragement that things aren't always going to be the way they are now. And that as a Christian, a Christ follower, we always have something to look forward to. There is an end to the way things are being run now. There are There is an end to the way things are being done now. And we can look forward with hope to a kingdom in which righteousness dwells to a place in which Christ will reign and where all the wrongs of the world will be righted and we get to look forward to that because God is moving the world forward to that point and yet we're not there yet and part of what we're suffering and going through is because we're living in a world that man there's so much wrong and so much messed up here but the hope that we have in the midst of all that is, this is not all there is. There is a better day coming. God is culminating everything together and things are coming together to move us forward to that purpose. And Peter wants to remind us of that. That was important for those in Peter's day to hear who were being persecuted and killed and martyred for their faith. That they needed to realize that it wasn't always going to be like this on the earth where standing up for Christ would cost you your life. That there was going to be a day where those who followed Christ and stood up for Christ would be honored for all of eternity. And that day is still coming. The culmination of all things is near. So Peter writes, be self-controlled. A word I like to use there to substitute maybe to get a better meaning of the original language is be composed. Don't lose your composure, Christian. In the midst of when everything is turning upside down and, and it seems like everything is chaotic and, and, and people you know, are, are just freaking out and, and they're filled with fear and filled with doubt and they're hopeless. And he's saying, Christian, remember... God is on the throne. The culmination of all things is near. So be self-controlled. Keep your composure no matter what's going on around you. Because we always know that in spite of what's going on and swirling around us, that God 
is not having anything take him by surprise and that he is on the throne in control moving history towards its end. There's no better example of composure than Jesus Christ that even on the night that he was betrayed and being arrested and knowing that the cross was coming the very next day and his disciples are just filled with fear and they're just flying to the four winds and and they don't know what to do and all of his other followers are just like backing off and things aren't going well and, and there's Jesus in the garden and as all these soldiers come to arrest him, he never loses his composure. Even as they beat him and mock him and scourge him, he doesn't utter a word. He never loses his composure. He goes to the cross, and the way he died so moved those around him that they put their faith in him as the Son of God because of the composure. And God can give us that kind of composure during hard times if we are trusting on him, if we are receiving his strength and his grace. Not only should we be self-controlled and composed, but we should be clear-headed and clear-minded, which is what he means by sober-minded. You see, the reason he uses that word sober is obviously even in our culture. A person who is intoxicated, who has too much to, to drink, is a little cloudy. They're not able to think straight. They're not able to see things clearly. And Peter is saying if we ever needed Christians... To keep a clear head and to be composed and to not be thinking, you know, cloudy thoughts, foggy thoughts. It's during hard times. God wants us to be sober-minded, not allowing our minds to be filled with all these things that should not be filling our minds, but to keep a clear head to keep our eyes focused on Christ and to saturate our minds with the Word of God. For notice, he says that this composure and this clear-headedness, this clear vision that I have should lead to something. And the thing it should lead to is prayer. We talked about the importance of our prayer lives last week in going through hard times. I go back again to reference Luke 18.1 where Jesus said, Men ought always to pray and not to faint, give up, quit, throw in the towel. That prayer is the prescription in the Christian life for perseverance, for endurance, for getting through hard times. You show me a Christian who's on his or her knees praying and seeking divine help and and asking for, for God's grace and all that, and I'll show you a Christian who's able to navigate the hardest, darkest, difficult times of life. You show me a Christian who's prayerless and you'll probably be seeing someone who's crumbling under the pressure of what's going on in their life. That's why Jesus even turned to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, knowing what was coming down the pike and said to them, guys, I know you're tired. I know you're emotionally exhausted, but it's going to be absolutely imperative that you stay up with me tonight and that you pray and that you watch And that you're alert because the enemy knows that you are vulnerable right now. And because he knows you are vulnerable, he's going to attack you. And so you and I have to be people of prayer. 
We know the story. If you know the Gospels, Jesus went off and spent hours in prayer that night and the disciples all fell asleep. And I truly believe that the reason why his disciples could not measure up to the hard times that they were going to find themselves in why Peter did deny the Lord and didn't stand up for the Lord was because they did not gain the strength spiritually that they could have gained from spending time in prayer. You see, prayer in the Bible is not a way of escape of my hard life. It's not an opiate that I, that I take to try to drown out what's going on in my life. No, it's an exercise of great clear-headedness because what I'm doing by having a clear vision is by prayer seeking an even clearer vision and spending time with God in prayer. It is getting divine guidance and getting divine power as I seek God in prayer. Why one of the greatest things we can do as Christians is not only to study the Word of God together, but pray. Pray as individuals. Pray as couples. Pray as groups. Just pray and spend time in prayer. This is what Peter says. This is his prescription for hard times. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of prayer. And then verse 8. We need each other going through hard times more than at any other time. I mean, that's the one time where we we better not cut and run. where, Where we better not abandon each other. Where we better not forsake each other. We need to rally around each other during hard times. And we need to come together as the body of Christ like never before. And that's why Peter then in this context writes, verse 8, Above all, keep your love for one another fervent. That if we ever loved each other as God calls us to love each other, it's during hard times. Jesus himself said, By this kind of love shall they, those without Christ yet, know that you are my disciples because of this kind of love that you have for one another. And notice he says, keep it fervent, maintain it, don't lose it. Because it's possible that our love is cooled for one another. Especially during hard times. Because it's so natural, it's so human, it's so instinctive that when we go through hard times, we turn inward. It's got to be all about me, God. i got to take care of myself. How can I take care of somebody else? Who's going to take care of me? And it's during those times where we've got to go against our instincts and we've got to be led by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and we've got to continue to reach out and love others because here's what God promises. God promises us that if you encourage and love on your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll love on you. I'm all you need. It frees you then to love others the way they need to be loved when you know you're getting everything from me. That's why Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I've always believed that if I as a Christian... And following my good shepherd, that I will not want for anything. Which then means I don't have to look out for me. My shepherd, Jesus Christ, is looking out for me. Which then frees me to start loving others as God calls me to love. We know that love can grow cold. In fact, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus addresses a whole church in Ephesus. 
and says, you know, guys, you're doing this, you're doing that, but you know what? You have left your first love. Left your first love. There's a time where, you know, we can be so on fire with love for God and even our brothers and sisters in Christ, but God knows that if we don't watch it, that that love can cool off. And God wants us to fan the flame of that love, not only for Him continually, but for one another, especially during times of trial. That's why, again, Peter uses the words, above all, this is of the highest priority. If we all start looking out for ourselves during the times of struggle, instead of each other, it's going to implode. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, in order to keep the solidarity, in order to keep the unity and what is needed in the body of Christ so that we continue to stick together and stay together and encourage and refresh and, and, and comfort each other, we've got to be willing through our love also to forgive each other and to overlook sometimes the things that others do to us. We just do. That's what love does. Thank God that God's love for us forgives us and overlooks many times the things that we do. And God is asking His people to do the same thing for one another. That our love would be so intense and so strong and so God-driven that we would be willing to forgive and overlook the sins of others so that we could stay together and not start dividing out and and, and seeing division and schism within the body of Christ. And then, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without complaining. This was really needed in Peter's day because Christians would travel from town to town and city to city. And in those days, they didn't have hotels and motels for Christians to stay in. And if they did have places to stay, these public places, they were very dangerous places to stay. And so a Christian, in order to feel good about where they were traveling to, would know that there was a family, there was a Christian family, there was a Christian single or somebody in that that other town that they knew they could stay with and that they could lie their head, lay their head on that pillow at night and not think anything's going to happen or that they'd be taken advantage of in any way because there's a Christian brother and sister that's willing to open up their home and share with them what they've been blessed with. Very appropriate during times of struggle and hard times today where Christians hear about other Christians who may be out of work or need a place to stay or need an extra bag of groceries or something and just open up and share what they've been given by God to them, to minister to them and to encourage them and to shower them and be Christ to them. That's what hospitality means. Just opening up our heart and all the resources and things that God has given us and just let our lives be a conduit, a blessing to those in need. And I love what Peter says at the end. Oh yeah, and by the way, without complaining... Not being the Christian family back in the first century who would say in the corner of the house, why are we the ones that always have all the travelers? Or a husband saying to his wife under his breath, 
think Paul stayed a few more days than he should have. See, Peter understands sacrifice. Peter understands that God is calling us at times to sacrifice. And it's so easy to make sacrifice, to do what God's called us to do, but still not do it in the right way, with the right motive, with the right attitude. And God is simply saying to his people, I'm not only calling on you to sacrifice when you least want to sacrifice because you want to keep it to yourself and not share it, but I'm asking you to do it with a good attitude and not to do it grudgingly or complaining about it. And again, even in the first century, hey, there were a lot of Christian families that didn't have two nickels to rub together. So you can imagine what a burden it would have been on those families to have these traveling Christians come into their home and, yeah, eat some of their food and and all of that, and eh, we don't have many resources to begin with. Peter says, don't let the focus get inward. Keep the focus outward. It's so easy for all of us, no matter what struggles and trials and hard times we go through, it's just so easy for us to just turn inward and begin to just think all about me instead of the others around me. And one of the best ways that, that God can redirect us and, and, and just get us going again and, and working in our lives is when we stop drowning in our own thoughts every day just thinking about oh woe is me and we start just getting out there and ministering to the others around us in verse 10 he says just as each one has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of god every christian has been given a gift and he's saying use it to serve each other Our gifts were not given to us to edify us or to build us up. They were given to us by Christ so that we would serve and build up the body of Christ. Notice Peter reminds us too that these gifts were given to us as a stewardship, verse 10. God has entrusted something very special to each one of us as his children. And and we have to manage it well. No, we didn't have any control over the gifts that were given to us, but we certainly have control over how they're used, when they're used, are we using them, how we're using them. You see, I believe that spiritual gifts are like muscles. They can atrophy if if we don't use them, but if we use them the way God intends for them to be used, we can build them up. And, And we can even see the gifts that God gives us to such greater levels if we'll simply use them as God calls us to use them i love this word varied in verse 10 too because it tells us that god has made us all so unique that even if two christians have the same gift it won't be expressed exactly the same because every person is such a unique creation of god that even within the gifts if if he gives two christians the gift of service it's still not going to be fleshed out exactly the same way because of our uniqueness that God has given to us. So that as I share with Christians all the time, you bring to the table something that no other Christian can bring. That's why we encourage every one of our saints here at Cornerstone to get involved in some kind of service. Because you've got to hear us say that the body of Christ here at Cornerstone will not be what it could be 
if you don't get involved and share what God's given you because no one else that comes to this church has that unique set of abilities, talents, personality, gifts, and wiring that you do. Only you can bring to this body what you can bring. Nobody else can bring that set of gifts. Serve each other with them. Peter breaks the gifts down just by sake of category to two kinds of gifts. They sort of fall in one of two categories. Verse 11, speaking gifts. And then the other is the serving gifts. In other words, the way I divide up, some gifts are upfront gifts, some gifts are behind the scene gifts. All the gifts are important and no one is more important than another to the body. But here's what he says. If you have a speaking gift, then please let it be with God's words. Don't be using your role, your position, your gifting to be able to speak, to share your own thoughts and your own opinions and all of that. If God has called you to speak on behalf of his people, to build them up, to encourage them, make sure that in a sense you are just God's mouthpiece speaking to his people. And this is not your mind, this is God's words. Serving. He says if you have a behind the scenes serving gift, don't do it in your own strength, you'll burn out. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Serve with the strength that God supplies. And the reason why God wants us to do it with everything that he's got is so that he gets the glory for it, which is what Peter goes on to say. Because he deserves all the glory anyway, forever and ever. Amen. By the way, I get asked this question a lot. Jeff, what's the word amen mean in the Bible? The word amen is an Aramaic word and simply means sure. It's sure. That's what the word amen means, period. Not period, but there's a period after amen. I'm sorry. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you. One of the reasons why Christians get discouraged when they go through hard times is because of their unbiblical expectations. Somehow when we became a Christian or we went through our Christian life and we were taught or whatever, somewhere along the line, we got this thing in our head or this expectation that if I'm a Christian, I'm not going to suffer. Or if I'm a Christian and I live a certain way, then things are going to go this way for me. And, and that, that is so damaging because like Peter said, if I'm living for Christ and all of a sudden this suffering and trial comes into my life, if I'm not looking at things biblically, if I'm not looking at things from God's perspective, it's going to blow me up. Because then all of a sudden I'm going to start questioning either, well, am I a Christian? Am I doing everything right? God must be, you know, punishing me somehow or judging me in some way. And we're going to get our minds so sideways because we are not looking at life from God's perspective. And somehow, somewhere along the line, we have an expectation that if I do everything right, God, I'm not going to have to suffer in life, right? That's nowhere in the Bible. Let's remember something. Jesus, our forerunner, he did everything right all the time. Look what happened to him. And Jesus turned to those who were following him and said, do you think the pupil 
is, is not going to have to follow in the footsteps of the master or teacher. If the teacher has to go through this, then so will the pupils and those who follow after the master or teacher. So Peter right up front is saying, look, don't be astonished. Don't be shocked. Don't, don't be dumbfounded when you and I sometimes in our life find ourselves in a trial by fire. As though, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. I love this concept, too, of trial by fire because it reminds us of the purpose of God, of why he allows it. God never allows trials to defeat, destroy, or discourage us. The trial by fire is a refiner's fire. It is a picture of a refiner putting precious metals and heating them up And because they've been heated up, it gets rid of all the dross and all the impurities and all the things that that should not be there in order to provide something that's truly pure. That's what God does in our lives through trials. That's what he wants to do. That when he allows a trial into our life, it's a burning. It's It's a fire of refinement. God wants to purify our lives. God wants to be able to reach into our lives and do things that he could only do during those difficult times. Because if we were truly honest and objective, if everything was going well, I wouldn't get from A to B like I would when I'm going through difficult times. Sometimes the only way God can work in my life is to allow these trials in order to build into me some some character and, and something in my life that needs to be there in order for me to experience God on a whole different level. And he does that through fire. So notice Peter says, rejoice in a degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ. That when we do suffer in any way, as long as it's not, as Peter goes on to say, for something that we're doing wrong, that we identify with Christ and we identify with Christ in this way. Let's remember something about Christ. Christ suffered, but Christ didn't stay suffering. He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay on the cross. He's experiencing glory. In fact, notice at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, this Jesus who died, this Jesus who was crucified, this Jesus who was buried, oh, by the way, but this Jesus went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. That's why Peter says in chapter 4, verse 1 to Christians, Arm yourself with this same mindset that Christ had. That yes, on earth there will be sufferings, but glory is coming, my friends. And glory will be forever. Suffering is but for a time. And the Bible doesn't minimize our suffering. It is maximizing the glory. God never minimizes what we go through. God is not poo-pooing the trials and tribulations and suffering like saying, oh, it's not really a big deal. No, he knows it's a big deal. He's just trying to get us to see that, like we said last week in Hebrews 12, if we can learn with God's help to look past the present circumstances to what awaits us, that the glory that awaits us as followers of Jesus Christ will far, far exceed any suffering that we'll ever go through here on earth. That's why Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings that I am presently experiencing are not worthy to be compared with the glory that I will experience when I get to heaven. That's what we've got to keep our minds focused on. That's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 4.13. 
so that when his glory is revealed, you and I will rejoice and be glad as well. We're never going to get to heaven and go, I regret being a Christian. I regretted all the sacrifice. I regretted all the suffering. In fact, I am firmly convinced in my own soul that there's going to be a moment in Jeff Royce's life where I wish I would have lived for Christ even more, where I wish I would have loved Christ more, where I wish I'd have shared Christ more, where I wish I would have suffered for Christ more. That's the moment I'm going to have, not, oh, I, I wish I would have been a little bit less committed as a Christian. I wish I would have read my Bible less. I wish I would have prayed less. I wish I would have been around Christians less. I will never have that thought. I will be glad and I will exceedingly rejoice throughout forever and eternity because of my commitment to Christ. I will never regret it for one second when I get to glory. And that's what Peter says we've got to keep our minds on. He says if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed The word blessed is the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are they when they insult you for my name's sake. The word means spiritually prosperous or fortunate. That again, there is a ministry that only God can give on his level that we experience when we live for God. We are blessed. We might be physically suffering. We may emotionally be going through a hard time, but God will bless us in a way that we just can't even hardly put into words and articulate because of our commitment to him. And one of the ways that God blesses us, notice, is that the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, will rest on you. I, I believe the Bible is teaching here that when you and I go through tough times and hard times, That God gives us a measure of his spirit in a special way. Yes, we have the spirit. Yes, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that his ministry to us is ratcheted up when he knows we're going through hard times. For instance, you go into the hospital now. You see the pain thing. Jeff, how much pain do you have on a scale of 1 to 10? I just always tell them 10 because I want the more, I want something, you know. Give me, it's 10. It might be a 2, but I'm, give me 10. It's 10. So what the Bible is basically saying is this. God knows really what the, the, the strength of the trial is. And the Bible is simply telling us that if we're going through a trial that on a scale of 1 to 10 is an 8, that God gives us the comfort and support and strength of a 9. He will more than match and give us everything we need through his spirit who is resting on us to get us through it. I mean, think about Stephen in the book of Acts who was stoned. The the Bible says that the spirit of God came upon him in a special way. And even though he was being stoned and murdered, he was having a conversation with God. I'm reading that going, how does somebody who's being murdered, and how do they have the clear-headedness and the composure to be talking and praying to God because of the special grace that is given to him at that time? And any time that you and I go through hard times, we've got to be encouraged that God will manifest his spirit in a special way in our lives to help us through because his spirit will rest on you in a way that he won't rest on you when things maybe have calmed down. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, verse 15, or thief or criminal or troublemaker, but if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. See, in Peter's day, It was actually a judicial 
indictment that could be brought. I think that person's a Christian. I think we need to arrest them. I thought about that and thought, how many people who call themselves Christians say just in America, if being a Christian was against the law, and, and all, they, all that was needed was maybe 10 people to say, yeah, that, that person's a Christian. How many Christians who claim to be Christians, or how many people who claim to be Christians in America, would truly be arrested by those who knew them best if there was something wrong with being a Christian? Do we truly live in such a way that those around us would say, yeah, they confess Christ, or yeah, their lifestyle is like Jesus Christ? Or would the people around us go, oh, I don't see anything different about them. Would we be convicted if being a Christian was against the law? Peter goes on to say, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin, starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? He's simply saying, look, folks, when God begins to take people through trials by fire and purify them and and their lives are shaken, then what is not shaken, remains. And God does that with his people so that, again, we are purified and we get our priorities straight. Sometimes that's why God allows these things to is because sometimes our priorities are so upside down and we need to get back to what's really important in life. For instance, one of the things that we are, 9-11. I mean, 9-12, was, there was a different feeling in America on 9-12-01 than there was on 9-10-01. It was like all of a sudden things that weren't important to people anymore, all of a sudden thing, other things were important to them because of what they saw and what they experienced and what they went through. A readjustment of priorities. God is simply saying, I begin with my own people. I want to purify my people because if we're ever going to reach this world for Christ, my people have got to be strong. My people have to be committed. A half-committed, lukewarm church is not going to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And and you could have 10 million lukewarm Christians all over the earth. They're not going to reach this world for Christ. But you give God a few hundred or thousand souls that are totally sold out to him, that are ready to charge hell with a bucket of water, and I'll show you a group of people that God can turn the world upside down with. That's why God starts with his people. He starts with us so that hopefully we will get to a point where he can use us to change the world for good. Peter's just simply saying, we know how hard it is when we go through hard times. Can you imagine what it's like to go through hard times without God in your life? I mean, as a pastor, I... So the, the, one of the great things about being a pastor is you're with people at the very best of times in their life and sometimes the very worst of times in their life. And at those tough times when I'm in hospital rooms with people dying or, or in funeral homes or, or whatever, when we're talking as Christians, one of the things we share with each other is this is so hard and I'm a Christian. I don't know how I would get through this if I didn't have God in my life. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, guys, if it's hard for us, how hard is it for those who don't have the assurance of God in their life? 
who don't have that hope, who don't have the promises of God that they're living on, who don't have that stability, who don't have that grace and strength, who don't have the Spirit of God resting on them in these times. How harder is it for them when it's this hard for us? So then Peter closes by saying, So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. I want to focus for a minute on the word entrust. It's a word that means lean hard on. That God is saying, Jeff, I don't care how hard it gets. I am so strong because I am the almighty God and all power belongs to me in this universe that you can lean on me as hard as you want and you will be supported. It was a building term. It was a construction term in Peter's day. It was designed to talk about a support that would not give way no matter what weight was put on it. And Peter is saying that our God is the almighty God. And so it doesn't matter what we're going through. We can entrust. We can lean hard on God. And we can still stand no matter what we go through. Why? Because he is a faithful creator. He can be trusted. He can be believed. His promises are true. They are trustworthy. He will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we can continue to do good even when things in our life can be falling apart. Because we're entrusting our soul, not to the government, not to the church, not to, we are entrusting our souls to Almighty God. He's the one going to see us through. The culmination of all things are coming, folks. We need to remain faithful to our faithful God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Lean hard on God during these tough times and you will find a strength that is way beyond ourselves in these hard times. Hope you'll come back next week for First Peter 5.